Today we have on Nico Young. Nico is a super talented young LA based visual artist. Nico taps into a lot of different things. But no matter the medium, Nico is a true documentarian. Whether it was photography in his young teen years, sourcing and hunting found objects, woodworking, fiberglass, Nico loves to collect and tell stories. We recorded this episode in a shed that he built in his parents' backyard in Santa Monica. The shed is made from fiberglass walls that illuminate light in such a warm and inviting way. And it's filled with different found objects that Nico picked up off the street or sourced. And everything has a story. In this episode, we dive into what it was like building this shed and finding these objects. Nico is one of those people that I hope to interview in a year from now, in five years from now, in 10 years from now, just to see where he's at and what he's drawn to and how he's growing and changing. I was really moved by this conversation and I hope you like it. Let's get it. Okay, we are in your shed, which is such <laughs> a dream to be here. And we're in your childhood backyard, which is a dreamy, gorgeous garden with a beautiful tree in the middle of it. A coral tree. The coral tree is the center of your backyard. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like growing up in and around I don't know, that beautiful tree. Did you spend afternoons in there? Did you and your brother play? Yeah. It's it's like an 80-year-old coral tree that's in the center of the backyard, and its branches spread from the front house to the back house. And it's super climbable. A lot of the branches are like less than 45 degrees, so you can sort of like shimmy across... And uh, we used to climb it all the time when I was a kid. Our neighbors would come over and sit in the tree, and my brother was saying broke their arms, or one person broke their arm a few times. Um, our dog used to be able to climb it, our, our old dog. And there's a giant swing. And there's a swing. Okay, Nico, what were you like when you were first kind of going to high school? Mm. Were you always into photography, or did that start... As you got into high school? I was kind of... I had a good time in high school. I was definitely, like, nerdy going into high school. And then I got into skateboarding. And I sort of had these two separate, Mm. like, social lives. Okay, when you say nerdy, what does that mean? Like, video games? Like, books? Break it down. Like, YouTube. (laughs) being into youtubers and like being into video games like but like 
retro video games <laughs> and being really into technology, like being into Apple and like reading Steve Jobs biography and yeah. like then it's hard to follow these threads of like how I got into photography. Oh, I worked at a summer camp teaching photography. I was like mm. a photography instructor in like mm. in like between eighth and ninth grade. And then I got really into photography. Well, it's pretty crazy. I feel like that you got a New York Times magazine assignment at the age of, was it 17, 16? 16, 15, 16. That's pretty bananas. It was really crazy at the time. And it's, it's, it's way more crazy when I think about it in, in retrospect, like thinking about how I look at teenagers and like mm. the amount of like respect and interest like these adults showed in me mm. and yeah it totally changed my life it's it happened because my my photo teacher just sent this photo project that i'd made to the like email the photo editor of the new york times magazine and she wanted to talk to me about doing like a photo story basically i was on assignment for like five months just photographing like my friends, school events, mm. football, practice, skate park, stuff like that. And I would send them like a new batch of photos every other week. And I was shooting on film and scanning it and laying it out in PDFs and then sending it to them. And then they would give me feedback and then I'd go and shoot more. And it was like a really incredible experience. What did your friends think? Of, of like being photographed yeah. while it was happening. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I, I didn't really know what was going to happen with the photos yeah. when I was taking them. It, I thought they might just published a few of them. And then it became this cover story of the magazine and had like, like 20 or so photo or like 14 or something, which was insane. And it, that's bananas. My friends were on the cover. and I think what's special about it to me or what speaks speaks to me about it is we as a culture have an obsession with youth. <laughs> I yeah. feel like and particularly those teenage years are so romantic and almost fetishized a yeah. little bit, I would say. Right. And often I feel like those narratives are told from like an older voyeuristic perspective, but very rarely I feel like, do you see another young classmate capturing their peers and friends? Or you do now. You do now, but like back then, I, I don't know, not as much. Well, it's only a few years ago, but... I don't know. At least in high school, like most of the stuff I was looking at uh -huh. was through, I think, the lens of older people trying to be in touch with right. that precious period, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's weird to me now because I just have so, I'm so not interested in photography. In teenagehood. In teenagehood. <laughs> in youth culture. Mm. So when you look at those photos, yeah, now, what do you feel? What do you see? I mean, they mean something to me now because I know the people and I know how they're changed and maybe I don't have enough distance from it in age to be obsessed with youth. It was like being a sort of like, detective or spy for the adults that were like bringing back my evidence and like showing them and them being like oh like look in into this further like shoot at the skate park more and like or like shoot these friends more and 
seeing my world through their eyes and kind of picking up on what they thought was interesting mm. sort of like put me at a distance from my immediate life. Mm. Photographing your life, photographing your friends, being in a social situation and like and having a camera started to feel really like aggressive or uncomfortable to me, kind of waiting for the moment mm. that somebody like makes a certain face and snapping a photo. It's a certain way of like just being in a, in a social s setting that I really grew uncomfortable with as I like, got into college and find really difficult to do now. Mm. But back then I didn't have as many reservations about like being that way. In a way, it is sort of a physical barrier between like you and another person, even just like physically, but even within like you were describing your headspace with it, because while you're there with them, you're also thinking like, I wonder if I can capture them in this way or that way. That's right. super interesting you say that. Right. So then you go to UCLA. Right. And you're in the art program. What was that like? Well, the art program's super interdisciplinary. So mm. they've forced you to do everything. Mm. You can go in as a photographer and not do photography classes for the first two years, which is what I did. And so I did like everything but photography at UCLA. That kind of breaks down your identity or like what totally. you go in thinking you want to be or do. That's beautiful. Yeah. And a lot of people don't like that and find it really stifling and like, why the fuck am I doing all this? Like, I'm, I'm a photographer and I'm like getting these gigs, but I am like now like doing painting and like, what, how is this relevant to like what I want to do? But it was really exciting to me and like fun to just have to work with other materials and see yourself applied to other mediums. And I loved photography, but I didn't feel so attached mm. to photography. How did it feel to start making things with your hands, like taking sculpture classes and probably different like studio shops? What was that like? I didn't have much of an interest in sculpture beforehand or didn't have much of like a material affinity. And going into sculpture like drawing and painting and sculpture. Well, I was really bad at drawing and painting. And then, well, I was, t I was also taking documentary film classes. Ooh. And I kind of realized like, it's not like really photography that's necessarily what I'm interested in, but it's documentary, which can take like way more forms than just photography. So I started like being interested in how documentary was the through line in like my thinking mm. and how a documentary could be made with photography or with film, but with also materials, mm -hmm. also with sculpture. Like, how could a sculpture be a, a documentary? I had this project in this documentary class where I found this binder of film, 35 millimeter negatives. Wow. It was like full, and they were labeled from the early 90s to the early 2000s. And I started this project of just scanning all of these negatives and what was revealed was this like 10-year arc of this woman's life oh my god it's like really cool lady she lived in like berkeley and where did you find this i found it in oakland at this like secondhand shop oh my god and they were just amazing photos and so much like my photography at the time mm. just photos of her friends i ended up finding her through like clues in her photos and like reaching out to her and like sending her the photos that I'd found and talking to her about like how this could be a project between the both of us and 
I was in this documentary film class, mm. but it was like, well, like this can't really be a film. There's a documentary in here, but like the material doesn't really lend itself as cleanly to a film. Like I didn't, I wasn't like filming myself yeah. scanning this film and, or like. You weren't interviewing the people in her life. Yeah. So then like what I ended up like proposing was that I sort of like made this lecture about it. That was like the documentary, the like ultimate form of the documentary. And then I started making sculptures from the same sort of interest in documentary, just leaning into the materials dictating the format of the documentary. Oh, it makes so much sense. I feel like, too, just even thinking about how stories can be told from objects. Yeah, and stories are charged within objects. A hundred percent. objects are charged with stories. And now that you say that, when I look at your work and even just look around this shed, so much of it is created from pieces that you found. And thinking about what lives that they've lived before, you've turned them into a speaker or a lamp or this or that. And it's really beautiful to think about that through line of like wanting to almost document and capture maybe the life that they lived before and giving them sort of a new moment as well. Talk to me a little bit about like where you find some of the things that you create and collect and make. Yeah, well, I think like this tabletop, for example, this yeah. bench top, I found it at in the dumpsters behind UCLA, behind like the engineering department. And it was like clearly a, a workbench that was this really thick and sturdy thing. And it's it's like covered in these scars from use and it has a date stamp from like 1947 on it whoa it's like two inch thick maple my interest isn't so much like maple workbenches but it's this maple workbench mm. that's like an evidence of a, a story of mm. countless stories and to own it and to appreciate that story to look at the thing and see that story in it that's like being discarded as mm. junk and like this feeling of rescuing it and like letting it live on mm. like in this in this way that's being like noticed and appreciated is a lot of what the photographic impulse is noticing something and other people might not be noticing and like capturing it and saving it and sharing it mm. so materials having that charge and history but to answer your question like about where i go to collect things well, I mean, when I was making the shed, I was recovering from a woodworking injury. I like, I almost cut off my finger. Oh my gosh. Wow. Just, I was brand new to woodworking and I just graduated from UCLA and I had all this free time and I was like, I had this idea of making this shed, but I knew that I didn't have that much practice. And I was like sort of doing these little woodworking projects to gain yeah. some more experience. And then I was like trying to make this dresser rework this dresser that i found and like change it change its size and stuff and then i had the router like upside down and i was trying to feed this piece of wood and then it just like grabbed onto it my finger went right into the blade and it oh my god cut through the bone and so it's crazy how quick it can happen yeah. and i had never been injured my whole child like i never had a broken arm or anything like you never think it would happen to you and then it happens and like it ended up being fine they fixed they, they did a pretty good job fixing it. They did a it. really great job, yeah. A really good job. And uh, for two months, my finger was like, it had a pin going through it to keep mm. it straight while the bone regrew. 
And during those two months, I like couldn't use my hands to do mm. anything. So I started driving around neighborhoods, I mean, the alleys in my neighborhood, and collecting materials for the shed that I was starting to plan to make. And I'm really glad looking back now that I had that two months of collecting materials and planning to make the shed because I don't think I was ready before that otherwise. And it, it slowed me down a lot. It was mid-pandemic when you were like, I want to build this, right? Yeah, it was 2021, early 2021. 2021 yeah. yeah. I got out of the, I got the pin pulled out and the next week started building the shed. Wow. And it took six weeks. Six weeks. What was that process like? Were you here every day just working on it or? Yeah, we had, we had this family friend who was happened to be in town and like staying with us at the time and he was a builder and he's like cool sky ever and so it was like this really perfect thing where he helped me build the floor and the first two walls then he went out of town working with him for the first for the first three sides of the six sided thing was all the help that i needed to like learn the basics of construction and then i built the rest of it myself mm. and then the interior has been reworked and slowly built out over the past two years when you first had the idea of creating the shed, mm. what made you want to do it? Well, the real reason is like, I just, I remember like being at dinner with my parents and my dad saying something about like, you know, this house is like going to be ours. So mm. like, it's going to be mine and my brother's and like, you know, like this is what my parents have like w worked towards mm. their whole life to be able to give us. And I just it changed my way of thinking about like this house and i started like gardening i planted a tree and mm. started sort of taking ownership of the house and and then like i was like well if i can plant a tree and start a garden then like what else can i do like what other like things that are a bit more bold can i do mm. and um to sort of make it yours and make it feel like and like knowing that i'm gonna be living in la for a while or like mm. committing to live staying in la for at least foreseeable years yeah realizing how most of my friends who aren't from here like don't have a place where they can just build something like this and mm. it's actually like an amazingly lucky thing to be able to to do to have a space to have a, a backyard that has enough space for you to be able to make something like this and not have to pay rent for a studio and not have to worry about a landlord that's doesn't want you to build something and so all those reasons like sort of made me start thinking about the idea of building a structure and a space to work but i think it was also like doing online school like during yeah. the pandemic yeah. And like having to make work at home, like mm. figuring out how to make art at home was actually really amazing. Like that was, it was really amazing to be a, a, an art student during the pandemic for me mm. because like, I mean, and being a senior was probably the best situation to be in because it's like, it was, it became this sort of transitional period between my life in school and mm. on campus and having a studio, you know, big workshops on campus and then having to figure out what to do what I could just do at home. I was just working in the backyard on sculptures and wanting some kind of enclosure. And, and then there's this like perfect 
blank space in my backyard. And it was, there's like a bush right there and a bird of paradise plant right there. Yeah. And so I knew that it was like confined by those two plants that I didn't want to disturb. And so the dimensions ended up being 10 by 10. That's kind of just perfect. Yeah. But now I wish that I like didn't respect that plant so much at the beginning and I just <laughs> built it like five feet out. Just five more feet would have given me like so much more utility. <laughs> it's so small. It like really is starting to feel small. Like already when you're making in here, it's just... Like everything I make is really small because of how small it is. Talk to me a little bit about your lamps and the fiberglass. I started making lamps for the shed. Right when I started building the shed, my high school photography teacher, Mr. Ledford, the same guy who sent my work to the New mm -hmm. York Times, told me that the dark room was being demolished wow. at the high school. And, you know, he's like gathered his things that he's going to take with him with the photo class to the next like new photo room. But there's a lot of stuff in there that was just getting thrown out. Mm -hmm. And he let me and my friend just come and pick through everything. And there was like so much stuff that was like so cool. One of the things was these Kodak darkroom safe lights. Oh my gosh. And I really loved how they aimed they just bounced light off the ceiling. Yeah. A lot of my photography, I would like aim the flash at the ceiling Ooh. and it would give, and I love that like light quality. And so I installed it in my bedroom and noticed like it had that same light quality of photo with the flash bounced off the ceiling looks like. Mm -hmm. And then when I started making the shed, I like installed them all over the shed, but then wanted to make my own. There's something so soft in their form too. And maybe the way in which they bounce light in the ones that you've created where form feels very almost like approachable and welcoming and the way that it shows light is kind of the same way like it's not in your face or overpowering but super soft and yeah I love them yeah and you don't see the bulb like when it's mm. aimed, when it's bouncing off the ceiling and it's only indirect light but then I found this fiberglass in an alley it was in this pile of stuff that I realized was like the clearing out of some old garage workshop in my neighborhood. And my neighborhood used to be housing for this aircraft factory, the Douglas Aircraft Factory. In the pile were these lamps, these like homemade fluorescent lamps that I realized like used sheet metal from the Douglas Aircraft. And then I found this tool that had this name inscribed on it. And I Googled the name and found this obituary for this guy that lived in my neighborhood for like 60 years and was an aircraft mechanic for 40 years at the Douglas Aircraft Factory. So like this was his studio mm. content or his workshop contents being thrown out. And a lot of the stuff in the shed comes from there. But he had these like translucent white sheets of aviation fiberglass that some of them were like date stamped with like 1957. It's material I'd never seen before. Mm. And I had this like fixation on fiberglass, like when I was making the shed, like all the siding is fiberglass and the roof is fiberglass. The way that light communicates with it is really beautiful. Yeah. You get this sort of like hairy, like the fiberglass, mm. the fibers of the glass are like kind of random. They like, are. And organic in that way. Like each piece is kind of different because of that, which I was attracted to and and light like you said passes through it in really like 
beautiful way and and it yellows over time and mm. so i found all this fiberglass these flat sheets of fiberglass and started making lamps with those as the lampshade and using in the same shape as these kodak darkroom lamps and then sort of like expanding on that shape and like making table lamps that utilize that shape but in different ways and i feel like fiberglass yeah is such an interesting material because at least the way that you're using it with the paper makes it feel really natural and organic and the fact that it does age with you is special but it's also super fake or like you know very like horrible plastic yeah form of plastic and there's yeah. some sort of i don't know there's something in that that's weird and interesting to me totally but it makes for a really beautiful filter for light. Yeah. There's this unresolved tension that I feel like using this epoxy-based plastic in all of my work. And it's still unresolved. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. It's, and it's... Yeah. And I know that I'm not doing it at, at, a, at an industrial scale. No, no. And it's quite a durable material can move in shape with you too right you can make yeah i'm just making flat sheets but i've you can make anything out of fiberglass any any form and stands up to the elements and i ran out of that supply of fiberglass yeah. that i found and developed this recipe and method for making my own sheets over the course of many months mainly while my dad was sick and in hospice at home that was kind of a project that I was working on on the side. And the resin, you know, epoxy resin is really expensive. And it really took a lot to, like, experiment. A lot of failed tries. Like, yeah. There's so much, like, wasted material. But none of it is a waste if you're learning. Right, right. It's so cool. It's almost skin-like. I know what you mean. The hairs of the fibers, like, yeah. sort of look like arm hair. But that was kind of a like a leap for me from like using found materials mm. to making my own materials, like having this aesthetic and affinity for something that I found and then figuring out how to like reverse engineer it and failing, but like making something different. And since this process I've been a lot more interested in like making things from scratch and mm. relying less on found materials. And even just the beauty of the process of learning, like just being able to experiment with fiberglass and the amount that you learn by just one new material that you're introducing to your work is, I feel like, so special. And the amount that you grow or like it makes you think about you know, sends you down different pathways of like, oh, can I now do some casting work, which could lead to like bronze right. or copper, you know, like right. just different weird avenues that you never know right. could take you in different areas. So your shed is filled with a whole lot of speakers and music and old CDs. Talk to me a little bit about music and the relationship of music in your life or even just what it means in this shed? Yeah. Well, speaker systems, I think, are a lot of people's first introduction to, like, electrical wiring. Mm -hmm. And it was, like, a huge breakthrough for me in middle school, I think, when I, like, 
put the wires like running all the way across the room so that I could have the speakers over here and then like the but the sound was for my computer that was all the way over there and like, yeah you were a nerd you like, were a nerd <laughs> and sort of like customizing the space using the technology to like <laughs> customize this space and no that's amazing and of course when I was building the shed I was like excited about making a kind of speaker system need to have the playlist going yeah. while you're working yeah and how could I have the playlist not be for my phone? Mm. And so then I found this like 300 CD carousel while I was building the shed, actually. And it was the first thing I made in the shed was this like console to hold the CD racks around the Sony Mega Storage 300 CD carousel. It's this like huge obsolete piece of technology that stores 300 CDs, but it's just kind of this amazing thing where you can shuffle between your entire library in this mechanical pre iTunes way where the discs <laughs> like are just spinning around and like mm. the disc arm like reaches in and picks out a disc and then plays track seven and then puts it back and then plays another disc tracks three or something, you know? So I've had that since the beginning of the shed and it takes up so much room in here. It's, it's <laughs> like an insane. She's a big mama. Yeah. For such a small space, it's a lot of like real estate to devote to something not essential. Did you already have all of the CDs? It's my CD collection from like middle school on. Wow. And I think when I started, when I first made it, the CDs went up to like here. And so the rest, the other like 200, I think I got since in the past few years. Where do you buy them? eBay? No, never. Never. Never online. Do you go to just record stores? Yeah. Yeah. Just have to like let them come to you. Mm. The sound also sounds so special too. Mm. Is that the speakers or is that just being played from a CD? Because there's something about it too that is like maybe a little feels raw and like a little muzzly and a little old in a good way. Maybe it's a CD. Maybe it's the sound system. Mm. It's not often that you're in a room this small with this many speakers in it, this sort of surround. There's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, like hooked up to it. It's all running off of my dad's old car stereo. Mm. His old car stereo? Yeah. What type of car did he have? He had an Isuzu Rodeo. Wow. Is there anything you haven't made yet? that you are curious in making or want to? I just got this, like, this is kind of brand new in my life. My girlfriend's old boss, who's this artist that I love, is having me remodel her new apartment. Ooh. Completely gut the kitchen, redo oh the gosh. floors, cabinets, countertops, sink. Wow. I mean, it's kind of a dream project, and, like, there's so many different options you have if you're mm. like thinking about a kitchen countertop again it's one of those things that like you don't have you don't realize you have such like particular aesthetic preferences for because you don't usually get to decide what mm. something will be that's like what's dominating my mind right now is like tile or like what else could mm. the countertops be could they be like one continuous piece of fiberglass that's like integrated with the sink and make the sink out of fiberglass or could it be like interiors are fun because 
Yeah, you get so detailed so quickly. Everything from like little knobs on the cabinet you have to think about. Yeah. But then you also really take a big step back and you think about the person living in the space. Yeah. Which is a whole other fun thing, you know, where you're like, how is this person going to be and live? And ultimately, how is this space going to be able to grow with them and grow with yeah. them? Yeah. It's starting like right I'm literally going to her house right after this to oh um, talk about our schedule. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's so exciting. Yeah. That's pretty special. It's really exciting. It's so exciting. And it's almost like, you know, when those moments happen, when things align, it's just like you're meant to do it. Yeah. And I haven't had a job for like months. Yeah. And like, I've just been working like gig to gig, sort of yeah. like waiting for something like to happen. But also feeling like, fuck, I should just get a job like every day. <laughs> and like, I don't know, God rewarded me again for not having a job. Literally. No, it's in these moments. It's right when you're like, oh, I should just freaking get a nine to five or whatever it may be where a little angel or like a little moment just happens that I think is the beautiful push to just encourage you and almost like validation in what you're doing and what you're creating. Yeah, Totally. So 2023 has been a really big transformational year in your life. Yes. And you and your family lost your dad, Jeffrey. I first, of course, would just want to give you my love, but I want to hear a little bit about, yeah, how you're feeling, how you're doing. And now that we're sort of closing out the year, looking back on it and what has this been like for you? Yeah. He died in February and two or three weeks after that, I went on tour with his the band that he used to play with, Jackson mm. Brown, for 30 years. And uh, he sort of like, we'd been watching this Japanese TV show and he was like, you know, you should really go to Japan. Mm. And like Jackson's going on tour. I wonder if you could reach out to him and just ask if you could like be an assistant on the tour. He'd probably say yes. And he did say yes. And I was away for like two months with, with the band in Japan, Australia, and oh. New Zealand. In Japan, like I met all these fans that knew my dad and like wanted to like meet me and, say how much appreciated my dad and like how they'd been going to every show and like meeting the band like for the past 30 years and this guy came up these fans wait at the train stations between each show like because they know the band is like going to hiroshima the next day so they have to be at the train station in osaka like at some point on this day and so they just wait there all day and then we go into the train station and all these people like come up all of a sudden and, and i'm like What's going on? And the guys are like, oh, this always happens. And this guy comes up to me and he's like, you're Jeffrey's son? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I have, uh, I, I have something to show you. And he pulls out these photos that he took of my dad in 1994. You're kidding at me. At the same train station or like one of the bullet train stations you're in Japan. You're kidding me. Just realizing like how he touched these people's lives mm. and that I had no idea about. And not really being 
so much a part of his musical life. Like mm. he would leave on tour for months when I was a kid and I wouldn't really know, think to ask him about how it was and, or like real, like going on, on this tour and like how much of an adventure it was for me and like realizing like that was how he spent his life. And mm. Anyways. And so I, yeah, I came back from that and then I've been sort of like picking up, trying to find my own like momentum again because everything sort of got pushed to the side when my dad was sick yeah and sort of like starting to piece together my life again and working in here in the shed making lamps and i've had an art show i had like my first solo show in san francisco which was really amazing and Mm. now i'm working on this kitchen bathroom project and i'm really excited about that it's so exciting yeah yeah nico you're such a special human and being and thank you so much for saying yes (laughs) and allowing maddie and i to come into your special shed and thank you thank you thank you so much for listening for more interviews and episodes you can head to our website peoplemakingthings.com things with two s's (laughs) or find us wherever you listen to your podcast This episode was edited and mixed by Matthew Konzelman, and the original theme music was composed by Billy Chapman. Follow along on Instagram or hit that subscribe. (laughs) We'd be so grateful.